The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Rich. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. Today, we're taking a walk down memory lane and starting a new section of our podcast called Coffee Talks, dedicated to exploring the personal stories and anecdotes that have shaped the field of human reproduction. We can all read through the timeline of great achievements in our field, but as they say, the devil's in the details and we thought it would be interesting to delve into the part of our field's history that doesn't make it into textbooks and journals. For this first coffee talk, we've invited Dr. Richard Scott. Dr. Scott is a professor and the REI Fellowship Director at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University. He was also a founding partner of Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey and now serves as the CEO of EVRMA Global. Dr. Scott has authored over 500 papers and abstracts and has won numerous awards throughout his career. Today, he is having coffee, or in fact a Diet Coke, with the Chief Scientific Officer and Chief Medical Officer at EVRMA, Dr. M. Ray Selly, and talking about his beginnings as an REI at the Jones Institute in Virginia. Dr. Scott, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, I have listened to your account of uh, the Jones Institute and how wonderful it was uh, in the past, but uh, it is a privilege to assist you in sharing this information. Can you please start uh, by telling us how Jones Institute started and who were Georgiana and Howard Jones before founding the Institute? Howard and Georgiana Jones um, actually were at Johns Hopkins University for what many would consider a career. In fact, they were forced to retire from Johns Hopkins based on a mandatory retirement age of 65, which existed at the time. Uh, as they were married, they allowed Georgiana to stay, she, she was 65, which, and Howard to stay until he was 67 because of, because of Georgiana. Uh, but then, they, then they, were, they were forced to retire after a very uh, distinguished career there where they made many contributions. Um, many, many don't know, but Bob Edwards spent uh, the summer of 1966 there um, and I believe it was 66, and um, went through uh, some of the very earliest attempts at uh, IVF uh, when they knew they had to capacitate the sperm. Uh, people believe, and, and perhaps it's true, that uh, there were some uh, in human in vitro fertilizations obtained uh, in the late 30s and early 40s, but they didn't know to capacitate the sperm, and it's hard to imagine uh, that those indeed were normally fertilized oocytes that made embryos. Um, Ultimately, of course, the successes came much later uh, with, with Dr. Edwards uh, back in the United Kingdom. But Howard and Georgiana were part of that small circle, part of, part of that group of, small group of individuals who knew that uh, bypassing the pelvis, uh, dealing effectively with tubal disease and endometriosis, which were the, the predators that, that impaired our patients the most in those days, because most of them were still in their 20s, um, uh, that uh, ultimately would lead to the success of IVF in all the places we are today. 
But at any rate, uh, the Jones Institute began as Howard and Georgetta Jones moved to Norfolk. Um, they had grown up in Baltimore, but they had, uh, they loved to sail. They had a boat down in Norfolk. And they had a very good friend in the, uh, in the form of Mason Andrews. Uh, Mason uh, was their first fellow at Hopkins in the late 1940s uh, and had uh, helped start the medical school in Norfolk. Uh, he was chairman and really founder of the academic department of OBGYN uh, at the, the, the University Hospital there and in the school and eventually mayor of Norfolk. Uh, deeply involved in the community, deeply committed to uh, improving health care for all. Um, but as the story goes, Howard and Georgiana uh, were literally moving in. They had bought a house in Norfolk, uh, and you can see a video of it. They have it at the Jones Institute. I'm sure it's widely available, where people are moving furniture into their house. Uh, and on that particular day, um, Louise Brown had delivered in the United Kingdom. So the concept of a test tube baby, in vitro fertilization, was very hot news topic. Uh, the news, of course, called Mason because he was the kind of the know-all, be-all person for anything related to women's health care in the region. And he sent them to Howard and Georgiana. They went to their, their new house. Again, while, while they were not settled, they're in casual clothes. And Howard goes out to deal with the, uh, uh, to deal with the press and they ask him questions. And the, at the conclusion of the interview, which, which was interesting, they said, do you think we could ever do anything like this here? Uh, and, and paraphrasing, but more or less his answer is it just takes money. Uh, there were people watching that day, and, and I'll hesitate to mention the name because I don't want to violate anyone's privacy, uh, but a very uh, wealthy philanthropic person in Norfolk area had a daughter with bilateral block tubes. And the next day they saw the news clip, the next day they're on the phone uh, with Mason, and within days after that, there was a plan put in place to create the Jones Institute what became the Jones Institute and to build the United States first in vitro fertilization program, uh, not just for academic purposes, but truly to help patients have babies. And so it's amazing how uh, serendipitous some beginnings are. They were at the end of their career and they began what would last almost 40 years, 39 years. Uh, Howard uh, worked in the Institute uh, and worked in the field of in vitro fertilization before he uh, unfortunately passed away at the age of 104. Uh, so. Actually, that would have been at 37 years. But at any rate, a very, very long time. Can't, long enough. I was doing Georgiana's age. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, definitely long. So that's, and, that's really how it began. That's, that's an amazing story. And, and, but in addition, like, I think very early on, they started contributing to the, to the science of uh, ART. And, and I, I wanna, we will come to who, you know, what you have done and what you have seen as you, you arrived. But what did they do before you arrived there? Like, a, I think a few years an enormous amount before I arrived there. So uh, Howard and Georgiana, of course, had been close collaborators. And in this small group of people, one from Australia and uh, a couple from England themselves in the, in the US, who were trying to figure out how to do IVF. And uh, Georgiana was the first to really come out and say, um, even though there had been failures with ovulation induction in the past, uh, that a single oocyte was probably not reproductively competent at any age, in any female, and to make this system efficient enough to be practical, we were going to need to do ovulation induction. Now, again, the original attempts in England had been with ovulation induction, and uh, the Australians had played with this some. But Georgiana was a, a true master endocrinologist. Her medical training was actually one-year residency uh, and a one-year fellowship in medical endocrinology. Um, there was no OBGYN then to, to train in. Uh, 
and so uh, Georgiana really uh, advocated and then developed uh, all the normative data, all the know-how on how to do uh, ovarian stimulation uh, for normal ovulatory women. There was no experience before that. They only induced ovulation in ovulatory women. The concept of superovulation was really very novel at the time. Uh, and she developed uh, much of that. Uh, all the different response curves, how to avoid hyperstimulation, uh, and uh, basically uh, set the foundation for the stimulations that we still do today. All of that was done at the Jones Institute and all under Georgiana's guidance. And, uh, and when did you arrive to Jones Institute? And who were you then at the time you arrived? <laughs> I guess you were not very knowledgeable about ART and no one was, so. Um, truly at the ground state. I mean, you have to just imagine the lowest possible uh, level. Um, so I came there in the summer of 1987. Uh, by then the Institute uh, was an exciting place. Uh, they were bringing a lot of patients from all over the world and doing IVF. A lot of scientists came from all over the world to study there, do sabbaticals there. Uh, in fact, I, I shared an office with someone who was already a, a, um, very far into their academic career in Israel, a gentleman named Daniel Lavote. Uh, when I was a fellow, because he was considered a foreign fellow, even though he was really uh, quite uh, distinguished in his academic career, it had a New England Journal article on the first uh, donor egg pregnancies in women with no ovaries. And so uh, it, there were just a lot of incredibly talented people there. And one of, the, one of the things that Georgiana and Howard did is that they always made certain that the fellows, the youngsters, people with really almost no background and very limited funds of knowledge, uh, had the opportunity to interact with all these incredible people, uh, both the, the faculty within the Institute, uh, but also all the visitors. Uh, so I had a chance when I was a fellow to, to sit and talk with Bob Edwards for hours um, about whatever I wanted to talk about. Uh, and Elliot Dashi, uh, I got Elliot Dashi to sit down and really beat it into me what insulin growth factor was and what it probably meant. Uh, before that day, I'd never heard of insulin growth factor. Uh, and by the end of the day, I could quote some of the literature. How, how fortunate is that? Um, I got to speak to just, I, I won't bore you with the, the list because it is, it is long and extremely distinguished. Uh, of people who came there and interacted, Ann Winston, and the list goes on and on. Uh, it was really exciting. It's, it's amazing. And, and you were at the beginning and what was the work day like for you mm. as a fellow? So uh, the fellows days started early. Um, we, started, we started at six. Uh, we were there a little before the attendings to get monitoring done. Now, uh, if I can digress just for a moment and tell you what monitoring was in 1987. So uh, we had radioaminoassays, not the high speed elices of today. These are true radioactive immunoassays. Uh, and we had ultrasounds. But the core of the faculty had trained in an era when those things were not available. How do you monitor a cycle if you can't do an ultrasound and you don't get any blood work? And the answer is that had all been derived by many people of which, of whom George Anna was one, uh, but also many people in Israel and Europe in a number of spots. Uh, and they monitored women by their, their biologic assay, their bioassay for estrogen effect. So they did cervical mucus scores to see if their cervical mucus was highly hydrated, had quaternary ferning, and they did pycnotic indexes on the vaginal mucosa uh, to see whether or not you saw large squamous cells in very few of the very small, uh, highly nuclear, large nuclear cells. Um, 
Um, can you imagine being a first year fellow with really no RE training and you show up the first morning and they say, we have 85 patients that you need to do a vaginal pycnotic index and a cervical <laughs> mucus score on, and we really need it to be done before eight. So um, those, were, those were the days. We did those, uh, they, we didn't really stop doing those until my second, the middle of my second year. And so it is amazing how accurate they can be. The rule of thumb was when they had a 90% pygnotic index with superficial squamous cells and quaternary ferning, that was called the biologic shift. Go three days past the biologic shift and hit them, it's almost always correct. If you find yourself out there without electricity except for maybe a microscope and you need to monitor people, you actually can. Uh, maybe it's not as precise, um, but it works. It works pretty well. Much less expensive, of course. But very, very cheap. We still did ultrasounds after that, and then we did blood work. The fellows would take the blood work downstairs, and in many cases, uh, for those of us who were interested, we ran the blood work. We even iodinated some of our own assays. So it was a, it was a little different now than the auto analyzers we have that give you a result in, you know, fifteen or, or thirty minutes. Um, but it was, uh, it was very exciting. Seeing the follicles grow was just extremely, uh, extremely exciting. It was a great time. How about after that? You do, you do those and then what do you do? You do did you see patients with so them? Or? We would go and see patients with them. And um, we would go and uh, sit uh, and with the patients and, and take some of the initial histories and then go sit with Howard and Georgiana. And it was just, uh, it was so great to watch them get information from the patients and make them feel comfortable. Uh, there, by then, uh, 50 years of clinical experience was, was very evident. And they could, they could look at a patient and tell what they needed to know. And they could look at a patient and know how to, to explain things. Some people, if they were asking the time, they told some people how to build a watch. Others, they just told them, look, it's two o'clock. It's all you need to know, you're gonna be fine. And, and it's what the patient needed, they, they were true they were true clinical, clinical masters. It was wonderful. And then how, how about uh, retrievals, et cetera? Are they, I think they were quite different. Retrievals were very different in those days. They were laparoscopic when I was first there. And yeah. to do a retrieval took three, that's right, three physicians plus a scrub tech, plus a scrub nurse, plus yeah. the anesthesiologist. And so uh, you would do a laparoscopy. Remember, you're putting in that big troll car and somebody who's got big ovaries, the pelvis, you know, they're up out of the pelvis in many circumstances. But we would, we would uh, put in the trocar and put in the scope. Uh, there were no robots and uh, we would put in the scope. Frequently the, the physician is looking, the attending physician is looking through the scope. Some used the TV set, but most didn't. And then one person um, would, would, uh, would help with the, uh, with the aspirations, holding the needle and would be the sucker in essence. So there were no automated pumps. You had a 30 cc syringe. And when they said pull, you did this. <laughs> all those years of training, this was fellow activity. That was fellow <laughs> training. Um, and that's pretty much all we did was pull straight back as you can see that in your mind's eye. Um, and then another fellow, that was the second year fellow's job because you wouldn't do that as a first year fellow. The first year's fellow's job was uh, Jenny would put in a second port and hold onto the ovary by the uterovarian ligament to try to hold it still. And then your job was to be what's called the statue, hold it perfectly still. <laughs> so we would do four, six, eight, 12 someday retrievals where the first year fellow would never see the ovary and their job was to hold that probe still, hold that grasper still for hours. Uh, and wow. we did. 
Uh, and then there was a screen from the microscope uh, in Lucinovic's lab uh, in the room so you could see the eggs come up and everybody was always holding the, holding the grass for sale and trying to look for the eggs. And it may sound silly now, but I have to tell you, it was so exciting. Um, and Georgiana, the tough cases, the low responders, Georgiana would cheer for the eggs. So we were always <laughs> very excited when we, we did something well enough that Georgiana would cheer for the eggs. It was, it was really a lot of fun. That's amazing. That's amazing. How about uh, the research projects you worked on uh, as a fellow there? So, or, or others. I mean, I know sure. there were other good other fellows. No, the, the people should people should know about the giants in our field. And the Jones were were of that rare breed of true giants. Maybe we've had four or five in our field in history, and they are two of them. So I I would love to talk about what existed there. And so research was uh, was driven. Uh, mostly by the fellows, some by the foreign fellows, few by the PhD postdocs, but mostly by the MD fellows. And even if someone had a great idea, they typically gave it to one of the fellows and said, go run with this. But we all had our own ideas. We're all trying to figure stuff out. It was very in very early days, so almost everything was new and novel. Um, but at 6 a.m. on Friday, um, except for the fellow monitoring, they had to go do their <laughs> cervical mucus scores. At 6 a.m. Friday, all the faculty came in and met over by the research labs with Gary Hodgen and Nancy Alexander and Bob Williams and Keith Gordon, Howard and Georgiana Jones, David Archer, uh, Zeb Rosenwax, Annabelle Acosta, Sue Hill Washer was an outstanding contributor always. Uh, these are, I mean, this is like the heaviest of heavy hitters in our field in the world at that time. I mean, you're, you're talking about people with hundreds and hundreds of publications and tens of millions of dollars of grant money. Uh, and they would come and they would listen to the fellow's ideas and we would uh, prepare a one page white paper on what we wanted to do and why and what was required. And then slides, back when slides were mostly typing out on a piece of paper, whatever you wanted to say, taking a picture of it with a camera and then running to the photo store to get them rapidly developed because that's where all the slides came from. There were no uh, digital projectors. No real slides. Uh, and so, but that was uh, one of the fellows always uh, brought uh, orange juice or juice to drink. And the Joneses always brought donuts. There was a little bakery near them they loved and they always brought donuts. But every Friday at 6 a.m. we would present our work and they would critique it. And uh, I presented the original idea to run the day three FSH samples retrospectively based on some of very response data that Sue Hill Washer generated to see if it would predict clinical outcomes. Uh, and I all remember is Howard Jones telling me, Richard, you're never going to build a career, career telling people how they can't get pregnant. Um, <laughs> but, but maybe ovarian reserve testing turned into a little something, far from perfect, but a little something. Uh, but the great part was you got those very direct criticisms. Uh, frequently, Hodgen or, or Sue Hill or somebody would end up at the board redesigning your study. But you would walk out of that conference at 7.30 with a funded project. I need $30,000 to go buy the assays to do this. And I'm going to save these samples and do this stuff. Done. This is incredible for today's world. Done. I mean, it was, there, was, there was funding for research there. And the, the beauty was the money was there. The, the horsepower amongst the faculty was there. And they, and they all came together to make sure the fellows stayed busy. Uh, I was no busier than anyone else. I wrote 28 papers. I was on 28 publications in a two-year fellowship. And it was just that much going on. It was really, it was really fun. Unbelievable. They also had the patient volume to do all those studies. Right. We were doing about a thousand retrievals in a year when the whole rest of the country combined wasn't doing that. So uh, it was, it was a great, 
great place for asking uh, for asking and answering questions. I I think we we, we talked about why uh, Howard and Georgiana are so important, but I know you're especially fond of Georgiana Jones. Can you tell a little bit more about her? Uh, why is she so important in the field as a mentor and as a scientist? And s some memories of uh, her. Georgiana's one of those people who just has special genius. Um, I've had the good fortune of meeting some Nobel laureates in my life and some other really outstanding scientists. And I, and I just don't think they're they're like Georgiana. She could just look at something. It's like she could see the molecular structure. She could see the endocrine dynamics. Um, and her, her, her genius was really just uh, unequaled. Um, my very favorite part of my fellowship would be the afternoons, the very late afternoons, 5, 530. It's the end of the day, you're tired. Howard was always going off to some management meeting that the Institute needed. Georgiana thought they were all, as she put it, silly, and I'm not going to those. That's the way she would put it. And she didn't. Uh, and nobody, including Howard, tried to make Georgiana do what she did not want to do. Uh, that was not possible. Uh, <laughs> but I would go knock on her door and say, Georgiana, do you have a minute? And she was just always be reading. She, she edited OBGYN surveys, so she would be reading articles. She would invite me in always. And I would say things like, Georgiana, how did you figure out what estradiol was? Or how did you figure out that gonadotropins come from the pituitary and there's two of them? And, you know, how did all these things, how did you figure out the stages of implantation? Where did you get your ideas about the luteal phase? Uh, people think the luteal phase de defect with all the complexities that go in that come from deficits of two or three days, depending on who you believe. Georgiana described it in the 48 JAMA before the dating paper, there had been a dating paper published in 38 Science, but before, uh, before the serious dating paper was published in 1950 by Noyes, and Rock. And so uh, she didn't include individual days, you know why? because she thought that the dating wasn't accurate enough to assign individual days. And everyone disagreed with her for, for a million years until Murray and the group at UNC showed that she was right in 1948 and has been right all along. Um, and so just, uh, just just many special moments. She always took time to spend time with the fellows. She had very sharp claws. Uh, Elia Dashi had been there one time and uh, given us a talk just for the fellows it was completely over our head, completely beyond our understanding. And afterwards, Georgiana stayed to kind of, she would always stay after the visiting speakers came to quiz us about what we learned and what we thought and should we incorporate this into our research? Wonderful, wonderful times. But none of us understood anything. And I remember looking right at me after I answered a question wrong and slamming her fist down on the table and saying, such genius is wasted on unprepared minds and stormed out of the room. It's like, wow. It's like your, your favorite person in the world, mother, grandmother, and mentor all telling you you're worthless all at once. Uh, but she was wonderful. And there are so many stories like that. Wasn't she also the first division chief? Yes. So uh, OBGYN departments uh, were really evolving through the 20s and 30s. Um, midwifery had always been either independent or a nursing program or a part of pathology. Uh, and gynecology had always been like urology and orthopedics, part of general surgery. And the thought of bringing women's health together took several forms over those years, but the first true department that we would consider a modern department was the Johns Hopkins, uh, led by Woodruff. And it was just a department of OBGYN. And then Woodruff felt like it was so disparate that they needed high-risk obstetrics, 
They needed GYN endocrine. That's what it was called in those days is gynecologic endocrinology. They needed GYN oncology. Uh, but of those, he felt the most different and the least prepared within the department was GYN endocrinology. So GYN endocrinology, what we would call RE today, was the first ever division and the first ever true OBGYN department, ever. And um, Georgiana was very young, uh, very, very young, still, uh, gosh, uh, it, it, she was a little before 30, I believe. And um, she was sitting one night at dinner and had uh, um, a phone call from Woodruff while she's eating being with Dr. Howard. I think she was 28. Um, and he asked her if, if he was forming a division of gynecologic endocrinology, and she'd like to be the division director. And she just thought for a moment and said yes, and that was the end of the conversation. She had the phone and then went back and had dinner. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that Georgiana was the first ever division director uh, of the first ever division of reproductive endocrinology, and of course, led much of the way after that. Uh, how about her thesis? Like when he was in college, I think he has, she has an amazing thesis, uh, which is hard to believe, but uh, exemplifies how brilliant she is. She is. Hopkins had a uh, requirement for people to have a thesis project to get an MD in those days. Uh, and you had three to four years to finish medical school, but that included your thesis project. So Georgiana, at the time, had always been interested in reproduction, even though it was, OB wasn't a thing per se. Um, and at the time, the prevailing uh, wisdom was that pregnancies were maintained. They knew there was a hormonal basis for it, which required. Uh, they knew that you needed a corpus luteum uh, from animal data. But the, the thinking was that the pregnancy sent a signal to the pituitary and because we knew the pituitary from all the, from the cases where people had she-hens or, or panhypopit for some other reason, they knew the pituitary was necessary for reproduction. The Germans have postulated that the pituitary was the source of what eventually became known as HCG. It wasn't known then, but eventually yeah. became known. Jordana said, no, that's nonsense. It has to come from the pregnancy. Because otherwise people would be getting pseudo-pregnancies anytime something was wrong with the pituitary. So she didn't believe that as a third-year med student with all these senior professors in the world all saying she's wrong. So in a matter of a couple of months, she went down to the slaughterhouses on the docks in Baltimore, got all these parts from cows and, and porcine parts from cows and uh, pigs, uh, took them back up to her little research lab in the endocrine department at Hopkins, put them through what is basically a still, isolated all the components for the placenta, and then started ejecting uh, different animals and proved that the hormone that maintained pregnancy did not come from the pituitary, but in fact came from the placenta. And so As can you imagine overturning the entire world's vision of pregnancy maintenance in two months? Not only she did that, but she did a bunch of fractionation things and proved that it was water soluble and an approximate molecular weight. So As a medical for a couple of months as a med student. <laughs> which I think will bring me to my final question, which uh, what principles do you apply uh, as, a, as an educator, as a scientist? Because I know you, you are a demanding uh, PI and, uh, and uh, uh, I know you have high standards and I, I understand it partially at least, if not fully comes from George, you know, what you've seen with the Jones Institute. So how do you negotiate those principles also with today's, you know, life balance? It's, it's not an easy task because the world also changes. The world changes, uh, fellows change, expectations change. But I have to tell you, I find it very hard to compromise on the principles that Georgiana taught us. Um, I, I will mention those in one moment. I, I will, if I can, uh, quickly tell you about the day I graduated fellowship. 
Oh, wonderful. So please do. I just went to say goodbye, right? You're going around, you're saying goodbye to all the attendings and thanking them for all they did for you, which was, which was a lot. And Georgiana um, looks up at me, very serious. And so she goes, you have to train people. I trained you and now it's on you. And that was it. That was her goodbye. That was, there was no other goodbye. That was it. It was a challenge. It was a, it was a requirement. It, it was a burden. Um, and I took it very seriously then, and I hope I still do today. You definitely do. Um, Georgiana's, Georgiana always felt like if a fellow comes, you owe them your very best. And you have to give them access to your most critical thinking and the best, uh, and the best teaching, access to all the other smart people you know. Um, so if you have a chance to go somewhere, take, take the fellows with you. If you have smart people come in, make sure they spend time with the fellows uh, and the fellows have a chance to see see their, uh, their, their brilliance and all that they have brought to the field. Uh, but, and, and then more than that, uh, just ruthlessly, dogmatically challenged the fellows. She was a big Socratic method teacher. She believed that, the, that, that teaching was not, she used to always say that a lecture was when the notes of the professor become the notes of the student without going through the mind of either. Uh, and so <laughs> she, she loved to ask questions and she loved to make you explain things. And she believed when you could explain them to her that you truly understood them. And so those are all guiding principles uh, that I, I hope I've carried on throughout my career with residents and fellows alike. And I certainly hope is part of our fellowship here today. Well, they definitely are. And, uh, and I do observe you working with the fellows and that's definitely what you do. Uh, thank you, Dr. Scott. This was incredible. I hope the current and future trainees will enjoy it as much as I did. I hope they do. Because I think um, the um, ongoing ideas about what is correct and what is not uh, in science may change, but I think the basic principles uh, remains the same. And you've been very lucky, and thank you for uh, sharing those with us. Very lucky, and thank you for including me. And thanks to Howard and Georgiana. I owe them so much. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions and all things reproductive medicine. See you next week.